When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me and hope you're all doing well out there in Bulls Nation. It's been another week since we last talked and the Bulls have played three games in that span, uh, losing two and winning one. The, the latest being the win against the Dallas Mavericks, that 108-100 loss, which I'll talk about a little bit later and its potential tank implications. But the week that was, the Bulls had some games against the Brooklyn Nets, which they lost. That was a good loss, a 17-point loss there to the Brooklyn Nets on the road. And then again on the road against the Charlotte Hornets, the Bulls happened to lose that one by 15 points, 118-103. to But as I mentioned before, the last game of the week was the Bulls against the Dallas Mavericks, two teams that are definitely tanking this season. And it was definitely one of those games that was going to have some pretty big permutations in terms of the tanking race itself. But yeah, unfortunately, the Bulls dropped that one. Well, they won it, but they dropped it, if you know what I mean, when it comes to the old tank there. But I don't really plan on going into much details about them get the games themselves. As I mentioned last time around, it's pretty depressing, I guess, going through and reliving game by game or play by play of the games that are currently happening on hand. We know the Bulls are tanking. A lot of their opponents that they will be playing are tanking too. So these games, by and large, are pretty uneventful. So what I'd rather spend my time doing on this show right now is talking about, I guess, the relevant storylines or the themes that make sense to talk about over the last week of Bulls basketball. So what I want to do right now is talk about the lineup and the lineup or the proposed lineup changes that will be going into effect come the game against the Boston Celtics. So what I'm referring to here is Bobby Portis being promoted from a backup now to the full-time center, the starting center. So he will be going into that starting lineup against the Boston Celtics today. So that will be interesting to see. And as we as we sort of knew already that the Bulls were planning on mixing up their lineups to a degree every five games or so, they're going to have a block of games where they're going to reshuffle their lineup. So Seeing a change to that starting unit isn't a complete surprise, but I was somewhat surprised to see Felicio go out of the starting unit and Bobby Portis come into it, given that the Bulls are meant to be tanking. So 
Yes, I was expecting some alterations to the lineups every five games or so, but I didn't see Bobby Portis jumping into that starting unit, to be honest with you guys. But that's what's happening. They're, um, they're giving the starting center role over to Bobby Portis over Cristiano Felicio, who will presumably go back to the bench and will still play. But he will be the backup, at least for this next five games that will be coming up. So we'll see what happens thereafter. But it looks like Cristiano Felicio is going to back going to be back on the bench and we'll uh, we'll see how many minutes he starts logging from here on out and Cristiano Felicio whilst he was starting was it was a bit of a mixed bag I guess there was some good things some positives to take away and I guess I, I sort of mentioned those in a post I made over there at Bloggerball but by and large though he was <laughs> he was quite quite bad during a lot of the uh, a lot of the minutes he did play there at center the, defensively he was a nightmare uh, really, really, really poor on defense. I don't know what's happened to the guy laterally, uh, laterally rather. It seems like over the off-season, he's just sort of just instantaneously lost any ability to move sideways or move his feet quickly to the point where he can get into a good position defensively. It's For whatever reason, that ability's just just disappeared. I don't know why, but it, it has. And it was clearly evident in that Mavericks game where the Mavs opened the game on a 10-0 run and pretty much all of their baskets were either dunks or layups at the rim and Felicio was nowhere to be seen. Now, obviously, that's not entirely his fault. If there's a, a bit of a, a weak perimeter defense going on, it's hard to be a defensive center in the NBA and cover for everyone, particularly when you're playing with a, a bunch of poor perimeter defenders, which the Bulls do have a few of those. But having said that, You've got Chris Dunn out there. You've got David Waber out there. And even Larry Markin's not a bad defender himself. So it kind of does fall on Cristiano Felicio's shoulders here. And being a good defensive center in the NBA is tough. It's difficult to make these reads. And he clearly just isn't. He's not, he's not, he's not with it defensively at the moment, whether that's a basketball IQ thing, whether it's his physical conditioning, maybe it's a bit of everything. Who knows? But He was incredibly bad in the Dallas Mavericks game and the same in the Brooklyn game. He was not good in that game at all. Didn't really record any any meaningful statistics at all. He was a minus 28 in his 29 minutes. So pretty, pretty bad run here for Felicio. The one decent game that he did have was against the Charlotte Hornets there where he posted 12 points, six rebounds and four assists. His passing was really, really nice in that game and uh, he and even his jump his jump shooting was quite good in that in that Hornets game, opening up the game with two nice mid range uh, jump shots there. But aside from that, Felicio has been really really bad. Even in that Charlotte game, Dwight Howard was killing him defensively. That was probably like almost prime Dwight Howard that we saw playing, just dunking everything at the rim. Not all of that was on Felicio, but a good chunk were. So. I understand why you would move Felicio back to the bench, but if we're talking about the tank itself, maybe Cristiano Felicio is the perfect tank commander, and maybe we had it wrong all along, and maybe that wasn't Cameron Payne's role. Payne hasn't been good, but he hasn't been, I guess, tanktastic either, whereas Cristiano Felicio has certainly been that. So if the Bulls are dead set on tanking, I don't really understand why you would remove him outside of the starting lineup because we saw against that Dal- against the Mavericks how bad he can be defensively and how much of a rut that can put the Bulls in. So if we're talking about strictly losing, I don't get why you would remove uh, Cristiano Felicio from the lineup. And, and I guess to, to point towards how bad he was being or has been over this last five-game stretch where he was starting, 
just looking at some, I guess, on-off data and the metrics that are involved in with that, when when uh, Felicio was on the court, his offensive rating or the team's offensive rating when he was on the court was 85.7, which is absolutely deplorable. And the defensive rating, probably even worse, to be honest with you, 124.4 points per 100 possessions given up on defense when Felicio was on the floor. And that was over 123 minutes. So a decent sample size there. And I guess when he was off the court to reflect how, how much things changed when he when he actually sat, the Bulls actually scored pretty well at 113.9 points per 100 possessions and actually were defended pretty well as well, a 96.8 defensive rating in 117 minutes there. So clearly over this five-game stretch, still not a huge sample size, but big enough to suggest what the eye, eye test was already telling us that Felicio has been terrible on defense and offensively, even though he had some moments here and there, is definitely not providing enough to justify keeping him on the court. So I understand why you would be taking Felicio out. It's definitely the right basketball move, but I'm just questioning whether it's the right tanking move. And the guy that they've inserted into the starting unit, Bobby Portis, his uh, his on-off numbers are pretty much the exact opposite. When he has been on the court, the Bulls have been really strong offensively, posting a 109 offensive rating and a 98.9 defensive rating. And when he's off the court, basically the reverse happens. The offense goes to the toilet. The defense actually goes to Felicio levels, I guess. And the Bulls are really bad in those minutes that Bobby Portis hasn't been on the floor. Now, Granted, Bordas is playing a lot of his minutes against second units, so you have to factor that in when he is on the court. He is going up against second units, so that's something to consider as to why he's off on or on off metrics rather, maybe a little bit better than Cristiano Felicio. But at the same time, Portis has been finishing a lot of these games as well, so he has been getting good minutes against starting units or closing units. So I don't think it's fair to just say Portis is playing against bench units over this last five-game stretch here. As we saw against the Mavs, he was closing that game, and he would have been playing against, I guess, theoretically, the Mavs' best um, closing unit. And I say best with uh, tongue-in-cheek there, because clearly it wasn't. But I'm not necessarily buying that Portis' numbers, his on-off numbers, are simply inflated because he's a bench player against playing against bench units, I guess. I guess that part of it would be the case, but I don't think the whole thing can be mapped back to that, I guess, that viewpoint or that hypothesis there. So I don't see it that way. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Bulls really do perform now that they've inserted Portis into the starting unit. And I do have concerns about this because Portis has been the Bulls' best, I guess, big man since, I guess, since Robin Lopez went to the bench and definitely maybe even since Nikola Mirotic has been traded, I think. I think it's fair to say Portis has even been better than Larry Markin over the last 10 to 12 games or so. So Portis has definitely been a valuable player. He's putting up some really nice numbers. And if he's going to be playing more than the, I guess, his usual 22 to 25 minutes that we've seen him play prior to Miritich being traded or even when Lopez was in the starting unit, I think if that's the case, the Bulls are going to be a better team. And we don't want them to be a better team right now. So... This is why it's kind of a, a puzzling move to me. And if we are to trust the on-off numbers of Portis versus Felicio, undoubtedly the Bulls just got a little bit better in terms of their starting unit. And if they do elect to play Bobby Portis, you know, 30 minutes a game or 35 minutes a game rather than he's, than he's 25 minutes a game, 
that's 10 minutes that you're going to have on, at the center position where you've got a player like Portis versus a guy like Felicio. So that does kind of matter. So I, I want to see how Hoiberg does handle this in terms of trying to develop the players, trying to, I guess, put out functional units that make sense, but at the same time, how he's going to manage that from a tanking perspective because he can still manipulate things by using his bench. He may be starting Bobby Portis, but if he keeps playing 20 to 25 minutes, then you can still be a bad team and still go for that tank. He can still manage this from a rotational perspective, but if he does what he did similar to in in that Mavs game where he did close with guys that sort of made sense in terms of a unit that you'd want to put out there if you want to try and win a game, I, I don't like where this is headed. And, and I guess it sort of gets back to why you would start David Warber as well. So talking about lineup changes and assuming the next five games or so there was going to be another ro- rotational shift, I actually thought David Warber was going to be the one that was going to come out of that starting unit because like I've just sort of spent the last five minutes talking about Bobby Portis, this is a guy that actually can help you win games. I think I think it's fair to say that Nwaba and Portis have probably been the most consistent bulls over the last 10 games at least. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't go back further than that, but over the last five to 10 games, they've probably been the bulls' best two players. Levine has popped up there, Dunn has popped up as well, and, and Markkinen's had a good game here and there. But I think from a baseline perspective, Guys like Nwaba and, and Portis have been very consistent in their production. So for the same reasons that I was a bit surprised to see Portis go into the starting unit going forward, it's the same reason I was actually kind of confused as to why you would start David Nwaba at small forward now when you're supposedly meant to be tanking. You, you've removed Justin Holiday, You've removed Robin Lopez from the rotation. So why would you start David Nwaba, who's actually a really, really good player from an advanced metrics perspective but even if you do you know you're not into the advanced stats you just watch him on the court he just pops off the court the way he moves the hustle the effort his athleticism he's giving you 110 percent every single time on the floor and and bobby portis does that same thing even though they're flawed players you know you're going to get absolute 100 percent commitment from those guys so I understand as a coach why tactically you would want to start Nwaba and Portis. That makes complete sense as to why Fred Hoiberg would want to do that. It's the correct decision in a normal scenario, but we're not really in a normal scenario right now. So ultimately, where the Bulls are going to be picking in June, it may actually come down to Fred Hoiberg and how he manages this rotation going forward. Obviously, where the Bulls finish from a record perspective will change their odds as to where... They may be picking where the lottery balls may lie. So if Hoiberg is managing the rotation to the point where he's playing guys like Dunn, Markinen, Levine, and even Portis and Nawaba 30 or more minutes, then that's going to be the Bulls' best five-man unit that they can put out there. And it will put them in games. So it will make them, I guess, more competitive in these games, which is not what we want right now. But look, I don't want to labor on that point too much, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I was very shocked to see Bobby Portis get inserted into the starting unit, even though I think he's deserved it. And I guess, similarly, you could say the same thing about David Nwaba. So they're the main lineup changes that we've sort of seen over the last five or so games. And I guess another small wrinkle that we have somewhat seen is Jerry and Grant getting a couple minutes here and there at shooting guard, more, more so playing off the ball, playing next to either a Chris Dunn or, or a Cameron Payne. So he hasn't necessarily gone back to being that backup point guard, but for a few minutes here and there, Fred Hoiberg has used him as a, as a perimeter option again, I guess playing him as a, a more of a two guard or a three even. So 
But again, that's been, I mean, it's been a minimal thing. He's barely played at all. But I do wonder if they will continue to do that and try to get minutes into Grant as a two or a three. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think his best success in Chicago, at least thus far, has been when he's been more off ball. And if you think back to last season when he was sort of starting there alongside Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler, it was more those guys running the offense and Grant sort of, I guess, pitching himself off ball and, and being a, actually being a good catch and shoot option. His three-point shooting was quite good last season. And I think that's because he didn't have that responsibility of having to run the offense and playing next to someone like Butler, who could be that, I guess, pseudo point guard for the offense, even though he is a shooting guard. It kind of made sense to play Grant off the ball. So I, I wonder if this has gone into Hoiberg, Hoiberg's thinking now in terms of why he's inserted Grant in as more as a, as a wing than a point guard. But it could just be a couple of minutes here and there as an, an experiment just to give Grant some minutes, I guess. But like I said, it, it's barely registered at all and um, I wouldn't be too concerned about it moving forward. But they're the main things that I wanted to talk about in terms of the lineup rotations and the changes that we can see going forward. But another key topic that I did want to discuss is probably the most important one, to be honest with you, um, going forward throughout this season. And it's the connection between... Larry Markinen, Zach Levine, and Chris Dunn that most concerns me from a developmental perspective going forward over the next 20 or so games. So I want to spend some time talking about that three-man combination. And the reason I want to do that is because Will Gottlieb of The Athletic actually put together a really good piece there on The Athletic about how these three guys have sort of started to gel now that they're getting some consistent minutes together as starters. So Obviously, we've done out for a little while and Levine missing a good chunk of the season. They haven't had a lot of game time together, these three. So it's obviously pretty important that they do get a lot of time together. And we're starting to get a bit of a, a more of a sample size here going forward as to how they can sort of combine as a three-man core. Obviously, it's it's a work in pro- progress. It's definitely not anywhere near complete, but we are seeing a few trends here that are a little bit concerning to me and maybe you feel the same, but... The main thing that I wanted to to focus from Will's piece, which I definitely suggest uh, going on to the athletic and reading, is I guess the the perimeter guys, Dunn and Levine, and, and how they've been using the ball and how they've been featured in the offense versus Larry Markinen. And my concern really is that the Bulls have become a bit of a perimeter-orientated team to the point where a lot of the offense is flowing through Chris Dunn and Zach Levine to the point where they're using the ball and taking more shooting possessions than Larry Markin, which to me isn't ideal. And what Will referenced in his piece there is when one of Dunn or Levine is on the court, Larry Markin's usage percentage is around the 20 to 22% mark, depending on who the who that player he's on with, whether it's a Dunn or a Levine. But the moment that you have both of them on the floor, be it Dunn and Levine, Lowry Martin's usage percentage actually falls quite a bit to the point where he goes from being someone that's featured in the offense to being more as a, a spot-up role player who may get a shot of here every now and then, but isn't really much of a focal point at all. So I think I think from Will's piece off the top of my head, it was about 13%, a 13 usage percentage. So that's really, really low. Like, ridiculously low to the point where you are underutilizing someone like Larry Markinen and his shooting ability if you are putting him you know, as a third or fourth option in a particular unit. So I'm a little bit concerned about this, this trend and I'll call it a trend because that's what it is. It's not a fact at this point that it will be this way going forward, but 
I, I am concerned and those statistics do back up the eye test. It's when Dunn and Levine have been on the court, a lot of the offense has been going through those guys and it does feel like Lowry's getting lost on the offense when both are on the floor. So it's certainly something to monitor. Um, like I said, I'm a little bit concerned. I won't go off the deep end just yet, but over the last five games, I think it's been pretty clear that that has been the case. And to, to give you some numbers, I guess, so over the last five games, Chris Dunn and Lowry Markman are basically averaging the same amount of field goal attempts per game, which is 11.7. And that balance just isn't right, particularly when guys aren't shooting well. Chris Dunn, 37% from the field over the last five games, four rebounds, four assists, and three turnovers. It hasn't really been an efficient five-game period here for Chris Dunn. He's been getting his 12.3 points per game, but needing almost 12 shots to do it, uh, it's not ideal. And for Lowry, he's, he's, he's been averaging 11.2 points per game. Like I said, that 11.7 field goal attempts per game. So his own scoring hasn't been efficient either, but... I wonder how much of that is in is him being just in a bit of a funk. Is he, has he hit the rookie wall, or is he is he adjusting here? Is he learning to play with new guys and being out of rhythm and being used differently in the offense, or being less of a focal point? Is that affecting his numbers as well? I'm, I'm not sure. It could be. It's just me speculating, but his his efficiency has dived off as well. But even Zach Levine, 18.4 points per game over the last five games. That looks pretty nice until you look at the percentages. from the field, 40% from the three-point line. So he hasn't been a good lead option as well. So the main three guys have just been completely inefficient scorers. But at the same time, I would still like there to be a hierarchy where it says Lowry Markkinen should be getting more shots than Chris Dunn. I think most of you will agree with me on that. I do understand that it's easier to get someone like Chris Dunn I guess shots, given that he's the point guard of the team, he's going to have the ball in his hand more often than someone like Lowry Markkinen. But it does concern me somewhat that uh, Lowry is getting left behind here in the offense. But as I said, they, they've all been inefficient. Lowry probably been the most inefficient of the three. His true shooting percentage is 45.3% over the last five games, which isn't good. And Chris Dunn and Zach Levine are only marginally better. But still, I think the hierarchy is slightly off in terms of who is getting the shots when and where. So I want to see that changed and tinkered with going forward. But on some levels, in saying all that, I understand why it's happening. This is a young and developing team after all. And the two guys that have the ball in their hand the most, Chris Dunn and Zach Levine, they're perimeter players. So it kind of does make sense that they would be shooting a little bit more and for someone like Lowry Markkinen, who's had almost 80% of his shots or his made field goals assisted this season, I can understand how he can be lost in the offense when someone like Dunn gets into a bit of a mode where he's going to attack. We want to see him attack. We want to see him get to the line, but he probably just hasn't got that balance right between running the offense and finding someone like Lowry Markkinen some easy shots versus t- uh, taking into account his own offense. So, I kind of get why it's happening, but at the same time, like I said, it's slightly concerning that marketing is getting a bit lost in the shuffle here as that third option. And going back to what I originally started on, the fact that Bobby Portis is coming into the starting unit, I, I really want to see over the next five games where Lowry sort of figures in terms of sh- the, the shot distribution going forward because 
Apart from Zach Levine, there is no other bull who has a higher usage percentage than Bobby Porter. So basically, Zach Levine at the top, and then right behind him is Bobby Porter. So obviously, Porter has a higher usage there because he is in that second unit, and he does get shots up because that second unit doesn't necessarily have a lot of offensive creators around it. But having said that, we all we know what Bobby Porter's tendencies are. When he gets the ball, he's looking to shoot. So... Going into that starting unit now, I do wonder if he's more dominant personality from an offensive perspective, perspective, whether he wants to go out there and look for his own shot, whether he will become that de facto second or third option, and Lowry then, I guess, gets pegged down even further down the totem pole. Does he become the fourth option now? Who knows? But I think that's something you need to consider as well now that you put Bobby Portis into that starting unit. Do you have your offensive distribution Correct, and I'm kind of guessing that Larry Markin is the one that's going to be losing some shots here, and I hope I'm wrong, but that would be my best guess at the moment as to where this thing is heading, but I guess to somewhat contradict myself now, that Mavericks game, and again, I don't know how much we can take away from it because the Mavericks are tanking and they were clearly playing some pretty poor defensive units out there, but The pleasing thing from that Mavericks game, even though we did get an untimely win, was we had a game where Larry Markin and Zach Levine and Chris Dunn all played pretty well together. We haven't really seen that this season. It's been one or two having a good game here and there together, and that third one not necessarily coming along for that ride, but this game, for whatever reason, I'm tipping it's because of that poor Dallas defense, but all three had a pretty good game against the Mavericks. So Lowry got up 15 shots. So there wasn't necessarily an issue there about him not getting his shots. He had, he had his 15 shots. He scored 17 points. So that's pretty good to see. And at the same time, Zach Levine still got his 14 shots for 16 points. And even Chris Dunn got up 12 shots and had one of his better shooting performances of the season, scoring 18 points and hitting three of his four three-pointers. So that was the kind of, I guess, the prototype of how you want the offense to be distributed. Maybe you'd like to see Levine be a little bit more efficient. He only was uh, one from five from the three-point line. But at the same time, you know, those three guys sort of combined with between, you know, 16 to 18 points, which is what you want. Maybe a little bit more eventually when they top out. But the distribution was good there. And even Bobby Portis got up his 16 shots in that game. But again, I am like a little slightly concerned now that Portis is going into that starting unit what will happen to Lowry. So what I'm interested to see is, will this Mavericks game and the shot distribution, will it be a bit of an anomaly of sorts? Or is this the beginning of a new trend where the guys are starting to figure out how to play with each other, how to get shots for each other, and how to balance the offense accordingly? So that's what I think we should be watching out for the next five games when it comes to the meshing of Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, and Lowry Markinen. So... Very interested to see how that projects over the next five games. But talking about Bobby Portis, and I've done a lot of talking about Bobby Portis in this episode, and and rightly so, he's been playing pretty damn well for the Bulls. But what I want to talk about now is a a bit of a a rumor that dropped here or, or a report from Vincent Goodwill of NBC Sports Chicago. He actually put out a report today that sources are suggesting that the Bulls and Bobby Portis will actually be discussing some contract extension talks in the offseason. So an interesting report there from Vincent Goodwill, because obviously that's going to have some pretty big implications from the Bulls' cap perspective moving forward. Not necessarily in this offseason itself. If an extension is to be agreed, it will be over this offseason. 
But what it does mean is it will impact the 2019 cap space if the do if the Bulls do come to an extension agreement with Portis this off season. So uh, I'm interested to see where this goes. Goodwill did report that it was only the two parties discussing an extension. It didn't necessarily suggest that it's likely or that it will definitely happen. But what this does is indicate is pretty much exactly what John Paxson has said in the sense that the Bulls are committed to Bobby Portis. They view him as part of the core. And if that's the case, I kind of see their perspective as to why they would want to sort of engage in those contract extension talks right now and have him locked up long term. It kind of does make sense. He is a 23-year-old power forward putting up career numbers. He's definitely improved this season. And, you know, when he hits that market and the market starts to, I guess, change. So we're in a pretty tight cap space environment at the moment. But in a year or two, that'll probably be a different dynamic. So I kind of get why the Bulls want to get on the front foot here and lock up Portis to a contract that hopefully makes more sense for the team than necessarily himself. But hopefully both can come to an agreed number that both parties can be happy with. But... At the same time, I don't really want to talk right now about whether Porter should be part of the core or whether he should be part of the long-term thinking, but assuming he is, what I wanted to actually put on the table was, I guess the logic that goes into this sort of decision and how it may or may not affect the 2019 cap space that the Bulls may have, and essentially what I'm referring to here is if the Bulls were to agree to a contract extension with Bobby Portis, his new salary, whatever that number may be, will pretty much come in effect as the Bulls will have their most amount of cap space or their max amount of cap space in 2019. So that's generally where, if you've been reading the tea leaves or reading between the lies, it kind of makes sense for the Bulls to be attacking the 2019 free agency period where guys like Kawhi Leonard or Clay Thompson or, or maybe even Jimmy Butler, these types of names are back onto the, the free agency market and there's some pretty big names, some pretty great players there that you would want to attack with your max free agent cap space and given the Bulls in about a year and a year and a half or so, they should be a much better team and it would probably be an easier sell to a 2019 free agent to come to Chicago than to do so to one in 2018. Definitely won't be an easy sell to get one of those 2019 free agents to come here, but I think it would be somewhat easier to convince them in 2019 than in 2018 after the Bulls have had a tanking season and hopefully are going to be one of the worst teams in the league. So what what I'm hinting at here is the number that the Bulls agree with 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 Portis if they do go ahead and make that contract extension is going to be extremely important in, term, in terms of what their final cap number will be in 2019. So right now, assuming there was no contract extension to be put in place, basically what would happen would be is Bobby Portis would earn his 2.49 million next season. So not a huge amount. He's definitely outplaying his contract value at the moment. He'll get that contract amount irrespective if he agrees to an extension or not this offseason. But thereafter, the reason why the Bulls want to extend him now is to avoid getting him on the free agent market and potentially losing him or having to pay overpay to keep him. So that's why they're wanting to do this, to hopefully come to an agreement to an amount that makes sense to do so now. But Finding a number that makes sense, that's going to be the interesting part of this discussion. So Bobby Portis's cap hold in 2019 is scheduled to be around seven to seven and a half million. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but last time I checked, the cap sheet is there or thereabouts. I'm happy to be proven wrong on that or corrected, so let me know if I am, but I think it's around that mark. So 
What that means is Bobby Portis will be on the books in 2019 in that offseason at around $7.5 million. So that will be counted against the cap unless for whatever reason the Bulls decide to say we want to renounce his rights and we don't want him here anymore, which doesn't appear to be the case given that they've come out and said he's part of the core. So that number, that $7.5 million number, that will be against the Bulls' cap space and will eat into their potential cap space. But what will happen is if they agree to a contract extension now, let's say $12 million annually. Let's just put that number out there as a, as a bit of a hypothetical. The delta between that $12 million number and his $7.5 million, so that $4.5 million difference, that that $4.5 million difference will essentially eat into the Bulls' cap space and they will have, I guess, $4.5 million less to spend in 2019 than they would had they not agreed to a contract extension with Bobby Portis. So it kind of makes sense to make that contract extension with Bobby Portis, but you don't want to get to the point where you're extending yourself to a deal that that is so large that you're going to be eating into your cap space and potentially ruining your chance of luring either one or two quality free agents, maybe even a top-line max free agent. So that's the thing the Bulls need to weigh here, in, and it's, I guess it's going to be part of the discussions with Bobby Portis as to find out what he's thinking his next deal should look like. If they can get him for a contract maybe $1 or $2 million above his cap hold, then that's probably something you, you decide to do. It's not too much of a risk because, as, as, as I said before, he's going to be on that book's for $7.5 million roughly as a, a cap hold anyway. So maybe you do mortgage $1 or $2 million in cap space for having that secure mind of getting Bobby Portis on a new deal for three to four years and you don't have to worry about his free agency period. Maybe that $1 or $2, $1 or $2 million difference is enough for you to commit to that. But if Portis is seeking a number around 12 or 13 or maybe even $14 million a year, which would be, I guess, double his cap hold, then that's when things really get dicey. Now, not to, no, I'm not definitely not suggesting Bobby Portis is worth $14 million because I definitely don't think he is. But I think $12 million, based on his play at the moment and projecting where he may go forward and the fact that he's consistently improved every season... Whilst I don't necessarily view him as a starting option, I think he can definitely be a, a sixth man type of guy. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 or 12 million isn't that far-fetched. So it will be a bit of a balancing act as to finding that right number where you're happy to take the risk of extending Portis now and consuming some of your cap space and doing so now, but you don't want to do so and take up too much of that cap space now and potentially hurt your chances at landing those quality free agents in 2019. So what the balance here is between the both parties, that's, that's I guess, what the discussions are going to be about. But a really interesting report there from Vincent Goodwill and clearly something to monitor over the offseason, maybe something that we didn't necessarily expect that we would have to do. But it does look like the Bulls and Bobby Portis's team are going to have some sort of discussions in relation to his next contract. So... We'll see how that progresses, but moving on to a more pressing topic than Bobby Portis's pending contract extension talks is the schedule itself and what games we've got coming up here over the next week or so. So as I mentioned before, the next game that the Bulls will be playing is against the Boston Celtics. So that you would assume would be a loss. It is at the United Center, but you would assume the Celtics would defeat the Bulls there on Monday night. 
And then the next game is a crucial one on Wednesday night against the league's worst team, the Memphis Grizzlies. So it's pretty important that the Bulls do rack up a loss against the Grizzlies on Wednesday night. And on Friday night, they will head out to Detroit to play the Pistons on the road. And then on Sunday, another very important away tanking game, they will face the Atlanta Hawks. So some pretty important games coming up over the next week of Bulls basketball. And even the week after, they have another game against the Memphis Grizzlies. So three games over the next six or so games where they've got an opportunity here to lose to, I guess, one of their rivals in this tanking race. So as a bit of an update for those that may not be all across it just yet in terms of the old tankathon standings, the Bulls are currently sitting with the worst, the eighth worst record in the league at the moment at 21 and 41. And they're sort of they're sort of in this middle position where they're only two games or so away from being in the top five range, but they're also only two games away from sliding down to the ninth there with the, the New York Knicks really tanking hard at the moment now that they've lost Porzingis and they're slowly coming back into this race. So the Bulls are in the middle there of potentially jumping up towards maybe fifth or sixth or coming back down to ninth. So the next week of games are going to be very, very important. And as I mentioned that game against the Grizzlies is actually shaping up to being a super important tanking game, as will be that, that game against the Atlanta Hawks too. But to give you a bit of an idea as to where the tankathon standings sit currently, the Grizzlies are the worst team in the NBA currently. They, they have an 18-44 and 44 record and are the sole owners of the, uh, the worst record in the NBA. So they currently got the best odds at that number one pick. And just behind them are the Phoenix Suns and Dallas Mavericks, who have 19 wins. So they're in the top three there. And beyond those three, you have the Brooklyn Nets, Atlanta Hawks, and the Sacramento Kings, and the Orlando Magic all sitting on 20 wins. And just behind them, you will find Chicago at 21 wins. So it's a very, very close-knit race. The Grizzlies are sort of starting to separate themselves from the, the, the teams that are in that four to eight position where the Bulls unfortunately find themselves. So it's very, very important here that the Bulls do rack up a loss against the Grizzlies, giving them a win, and maybe more importantly, giving the Bulls that loss against a key tanking rival, which I guess is kind of it's kind of crappy that we have to get into this situation now where we have to root for losses or where we're we're actually discussing this on a podcast as a segment about tracking the tank and these sorts of things. But it's the state of it's the state of the NBA at the moment. This is the incentive. Four teams currently, you've obviously heard the Dallas Mavericks are coming out and admitting that they're tanking, or they did so at least once. Mark Cuban was candid about that. He, I guess he retracted that statement somewhat. But everyone knows there's at least eight to eight to 10 teams trying to tank at the moment. So getting the loss is very important. But if it's even more so important than getting those losses against those rivals who are also trying to tank. So these games against the, the Grizzlies and the Atlanta Hawks coming up, may go a long way in terms of deciding where the Bulls are picking come June. And with that in mind, that that's why I guess I was kind of disappointed to see the Bulls win against the Dallas Mavericks because the Mavericks are a team that you're, I guess, tanking against. Handing them a loss whilst you beat them, that's doubly potent for your tank. So it was a disastrous win there for the Bulls. And if they do the same thing against the Grizzlies and then against the Hawks, giving those two teams losses whilst 
the Bulls are racking up wins, that's going to be an issue when it comes to the end of the season and we're talking about the lottery odds. So this week is maybe the most important week this season thus far. It's it's sad to say that, like I said, we don't want to root for losses. It's against our general instinct and as fans. But this is the incentive structure the NBA has in place right now. And the Bulls, being a rebuilding team that want to rebuild their team through the draft, if that's going to be your MO, then you want to get the best possible pick going forward. So I think we're all pretty much on in alignment on that front. But is it as easy as I just sort of said? We know that the Bulls should be tanking. But when you look at this roster and you look at the players on there, the Bulls actually do have more talented players than a lot of these teams out there at the moment. Whilst guys like Dunn, Nwaba, Portis, Zach Levine even, they have their flaws and they may not necessarily be all-stars or, or, or they may not be game-changing players going forward for the franchise, what they are right now is they are better than a lot of other teams' cores. If you think about the Atlanta Hawks or the Memphis Grizzlies, they don't have the young talent the Bulls currently do, even if the Bulls' talent is somewhat limited or we do have, I guess, differing opinions as to what their ceilings may be. The fact is, these players are currently on the roster. The Bulls have three or four guys, maybe even five, that are actually good young core pieces. That matters when it comes to the tanking race. And think about guys like Dunn and Nawaba and Portis and the type of players they are. And at their core, they're, I guess, really high-energy guys that give you consistent effort and they make a living by outworking their opponents. Even if you want to tank, these types of players are going to make it super hard to do so. Even Larry Markkinen, despite you know having a finesse game where he's more skill-based than outworking or out-hustling or out-muscling his opponent, he's still a guy that doesn't quit. He never gives up and he doesn't even play soft at all, even though he's a big shooter who's coming in as a rookie in this year. So the Bulls just don't have a lot of players out there at the moment who are weak, who are soft, that you can just sort of roll out there and just expect a loss just to happen. These guys don't operate that way. It's not in their MO. It's not the way they play the game. And like I said, some of these guys have been in the system two or three years now compared to some of these other teams like the Kings who have De'Aaron Fox as their point guard who's learning the ropes as he's playing right now. They've got a lot of younger guys in position that just don't necessarily have the pedigree or the experience that these Bulls guys do. Zach Levine may be one of the best players amongst these tanking teams. So when you have these guys on the roster, it does become a little bit more difficult to tank. But that doesn't mean you can't be doing a little bit more. And I think Fred Hoiberg, like I said before, he's going to be the one ultimately here that decides how the Bulls will finish this season out in the tanking race. I think he could be doing a little bit more in terms of managing this tank scenario. In the Dallas Mavericks game, he played Lowry Markkinen, Zach Levine, and Chris Dunn 34 minutes. Now, as I said before, it's important to get those guys' minutes together and to develop them. But at the same time, do they need to be playing 34 minutes? Or can you back that down to maybe 27 or 28 apiece and then maybe replace Lowry with Noah Vonley a little bit more, who only got three minutes against the Mavericks? You need to see what you've got in Vonley. So, It can be justified that you could give him an extra four to five or maybe even six minutes, take them away from Lowry, and maybe that will help you develop Vonley, but at the same time, will help increase your odds at tanking. The same logic holds true on the perimeter. Instead of giving Zach Levine 34 minutes, maybe you can bump him down to 30, and you can play Denzel Valentine more, or maybe you put Jerry and Grant in a shooting gun a little bit more. Same thing at point guard. If you want to play Cameron Payne a little bit more, We want to play Jerry and Grant back at point guard. There's things you can be doing 
whilst managing or balancing this act between developing your players whilst also tanking. I think there is more that Fred Hoiberg could be doing. And as I said before, he will be an important factor here in the tank moving forward. And I started off this entire podcast talking about Cristiano Felicio and him being maybe the tank commander that we all didn't necessarily expect coming into this season. But that's exactly what he's been. Why is, why is he not starting? Keep, keep him in there for tanking reasons. He, you've paid this guy $8 million a season. You need to develop him. You need to see what you have in him, even though you thought you knew that. There's no point having him rot on the bench there, earning $8 million. He's not going to get better by doing that. So if you can get minutes into Felicio, that hopefully make him a better basketball player, but at the same time, actively makes the Bulls a worse team right now, you can be doing that. These are the small, slight moves that you can be doing to enhance the tanking odds, but at the same time, do have some developmental sense behind them. So I know I'm ranting now, and I don't want to go too much longer about this whole tanking thing, but given that there's been reports of, I guess, teams like the Mavericks using their analytics department to, I guess, come up with lineups that just don't make any sense that you know, these five-man units that have been really bad and you've got a guy like Rick Carlisle rolling them out and actively, I guess, following through with what his front office is trying to achieve from a tanking perspective, it is kind of frustrating to see the Bulls, I guess, not openly admitting that they want to tank, but signaling that they are trying to rebuild through the draft and putting in measures that they want to tank by benching guys like Holiday and Lopez, but not going fully through with it all and playing rotations that may help you do that. So just so it's clear, I'm not suggesting they should rest Lowry or they should strip Zach Levine of all these minutes or anything like that. But if we're using the, the Mavericks game as a bit of a template, Hoiberg went back to his best players and closed the game that way. I don't think Rick Carlisle did. I think he played some units there at the end that probably weren't all in, probably weren't going to get you that W. But um, look, the Mavericks got the win and they're, they're better situated in that tank race than the Bulls. And I say that the Mavs got the win. So I've gotten to the point now where I say the Mavs got the win, even though they lost, because that's just where my mind is right now. Like I said, this is the incentive structure that we're dealing in. But I want to see the Bulls tank a little bit harder. I think they can do so whilst at the same time managing the development of the key three guys, Lowry, Chris Dunn, and Zach Levine. But then even other guys like Portis and Nwaba and Valentine, you can still get those guys' minutes and balance this whole thing a little bit better. But... I think that's just about enough ranting right now. If you've lasted this long in the episode, you're probably telling me to shut the hell up and I I don't blame you. So with that in mind, it's probably a good idea to sign off on this episode of the show. I appreciate you guys joining in and listening on. And as I said before, it's going to be a very important week of Bulls basketball coming up. Once it's done, I'll be back again to give you my thoughts, give you some new rants. Hopefully, they're not the same ones. But uh, as always, I appreciate you guys joining me and I'll catch you all again next time. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. 
For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.